Please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1, and we'll, I'll be scanning chapters 1 through 3 as a, a beginning point. I also have two verses or two passages on your outline that um, have purpose for why they are uh, paired this way. We've come to the end of chapter 3, and I mentioned some time ago as we've worked through some, several weeks through these first three chapters that I would do a bit of a summary when we got to the end. Uh, to capture everything we've been learning. Um, What you have in these first three chapters is the foundation for biblical anthropology. Who is man? What is his purpose? How does he relate with God? And then uh, connected are all the issues of humanity that we face every day in a very practical, relevant, current way. Um, What we learn in these chapters helps us to interpret those things. And for Christians to be well-equipped is so important. Um, It's not to say that as we read the Bible, we realize what's true, that we're just going to be able to immediately make such an impact that everybody else will see it this way. We know that's the constant struggle. But I think for Christians to be well-formed by the Scripture rather than reactionary whenever an issue rises is so important. So we've been preaching through these chapters of Genesis somewhat slowly and carefully and even repetitively about the different concepts and themes. And we'll do a little bit of that at the beginning. Then at the end, I want you to see how I think you are really well equipped with what you know already to handle many of the issues that come just to rightly interpret them. We'll see that together. First, I want to read two passages. This is God's holy word. I'll read the passage from Genesis 2 that's on your outline that reminds us of the covenant of works, that pre-fall condition of man. And then I'll read Genesis 3, the verses we have not yet covered, 22 through 24, which shows you the other side of the fall. Here as I read God's holy word. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then to Genesis 3, the last verses of this section. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Father, your word is so rich and deep. Your word reveals what is necessary for faith and life. Here we have been studying the foundation for everything in these opening chapters of Genesis. Lord, please illuminate our understanding, our understanding of your word so that we might interpret um, everything that's happening around us through the lens of your word and what you say is true. I pray for my brothers and sisters here who are living out in the world and have so many things confronting them. I pray that this would encourage them as they see your design and your order and uh, this help us all to have a, a proper lens to understand these things. Show us what is true. And then also, Lord, we need you to show us what to do. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. A great resource on the book of Genesis and on creation itself comes from Francis Schaeffer. He wrote a book many years ago called Genesis in Space and Time. It's not really a Bible commentary the same way other commentaries are written, 
although he does go through the passages very well. It's more a theology or a philosophy of creation based on God's creation account in Genesis. He covers Genesis 1 through 11, just like I'm covering in the series. But an intro comment he makes helps us here realize how important these first three chapters especially are. Schaefer wrote, Here is an answer for modern man overwhelmed by the problem of being, by knowing that something is there and yet not being able to understand it. Everything which has being, except God himself, rests upon the fact that God has willed and brought it into creation. With this, I understand why being is there and why it has form. And I understand that particular part of being, which I myself am, in the mannishness or personality that I find in me. Things fall into place, not through a leap in the dark, but through that which makes good sense and can be discussed. Once and for all, God did create the being of the external world and man's existence. They are not God, and they are not an extension of God, but they exist because of an act of the will of that which is personal and which existed prior to their being. Bottom line here, Genesis 1 through 3 is the foundation of biblical anthropology. And biblical anthropology deals with who we are and how we relate to God. And this helps us to understand ourselves through his perspective. Now, we don't ignore the perspective of people, uh, but we want to see things primarily as believers through God's lens first so we can understand what people are doing, what we do. Here's a corollary, very practical point. Outside of God's design and structure, there is only chaos, pain, and misery. That's the most fundamental, practical point. Recognize that the nations rage because they say there's no God, or they know there's no God. Ignoring God's design and purpose for mankind ends in our extreme peril. Genesis 1 through 3, this is the summary of those chapters this morning. And it's a necessary starting point for biblical anthropology. I think it's important for young people to pay close attention as you are learning and filling your minds with all the things that you're studying, lots of good information, but no information is really more important for you interpretively, for you to have lens to interpret and to be critical thinkers. Nothing could be more important than what God himself says is true of his design. And for anyone, any stage in your walk in Christ, to be refreshed and renewed in this structure is of foundational and essential importance for us as we live our lives in this world. You know, the various authors of the Old Testament take their cue from Genesis 1 through 3 in how those, these chapters give us a biblical anthropology. Jesus himself believed and taught the anthropology of these first three chapters of the Bible. Paul and the apostles believed and taught the anthropology of Genesis 1 through 3. Hosts of people over the course of time have believed in the anthropology of Genesis 1 through 3. It's interesting in our own national context that the majority of the framers of our country's constitution, while they may not have been believers in Christ the way the Bible describes we must be to be related rightly to God, they started with a presupposition about biblical anthropology when they wrote uh, the guidelines and rules for how the country would operate going forth. So this presupposition or this pre-commitment to biblical anthropology has had great impact the world over. We've witnessed it. And where there is no acknowledgement of it, we can see the results of that as well. 
Now, before we go to practically applying what we've learned so far to various issues, let's go back and skim through, survey through what we know from Genesis 1 through 3. You can have your Bibles open or you can listen. I'll try to cite some of the verses. Again, it's helping us to remember how the Bible sets up our purpose, who God is, and who we are by nature. In Genesis 1, the very beginning, we learn who is the sovereign one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God is the eternal creator. He was there before anything else existed. God has no beginning. He always was. He's the sovereign of the universe as a result. Everything that is was created by him. And so it's answerable to him. He owns it all. The universe, including the heavens and the earth, are the work of his spoken word. That's how powerful he is. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. In Genesis 1, God's creation over the span of a six-day period is laid out for us. He forms the heavens and the earth, and then he proceeds to fill them. The sixth day is particularly climactic as he creates the creatures that roam the earth, and then it reaches a pinnacle with the creation of man. In the 24th verse of the first chapter, God said, let the earth bring forth the living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and it was so. And when he looks at all that he created, he said it was good, and he refrains with that statement several times. Then God said, let us make man in our image. Let us, the plural of majesty Elohim speaking now, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So God creates everything, and now he creates man and does so differently than the other portions of creation. He does so in his image. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens. So we see that man created in his image are given dominion over the rest of the creation over the livestock, over the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, and we're given something else. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. Humankind divided into men and women. More anthropology. Man not like animals. Man is made in the image of God, male, female, dominion over the earth, the creatures of the earth, placed on the earth as God's representatives to tend and care for it. For his own good, mankind's good and flourishing, ultimately for the glory of God over his glorious and good creation. In Genesis 1.28, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth, subdue it, that word subdue, exercise dominion over it, um, manage it, harness its energies, its resources, subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, and every living thing that moves on the earth. So Genesis 1 shows us God to be sovereign. He's the creator. Everything owes its existence and loyalty to him. Genesis 1 shows mankind as the crown of his creation, different from the rest of creation, with specific purpose to tend and to keep God's creation for God's glory as God's representatives, as God's vice regents on the earth. And then we learn he ceases from his work and takes Sabbath. He provides a pattern for work and rest that will be perpetuated going forward. Something to look forward to with regard to the fellowship we have with God. The first part of chapter 2, the heavens and the earth were finished and the host of them. On the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. He rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. 
God's Sabbath is a picture of his satisfaction with all that he had made in the state thereof. The Sabbath rest is also a forecast of that rest that we enter into as we are rightly related to God. Genesis 2 focuses that next on the specific creation of people. It gets even more uh, focused on anthropology. It's not a second creation act. It's going back now and giving us details that we didn't have before, which teaches us more about who we are and what our purpose is. God's design and his structure. In the seventh verse of Genesis 2, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Man is created from the dust, created as a nexus of body and soul. People are body and soul. This is how we're constituted. Man is highly valued by God, specially treated. Though coming from the dust, very humble origins, there's a glory because of the image of God that we bear. It says in verse 8 of chapter, chapter 2, And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east. There he put the man whom he had formed. This would be a picture of the whole of the earth that would be subdued by mankind, starting in Eden. This picture of the presence of God there in Eden, where man fellowshiped directly and perfectly with God and directly and perfectly with each other. The perfect picture of paradise there set up in God there with man, no division between. Then we come to Genesis 2.16. This is the passage I read earlier. This is the covenant of works. We might call this God's test for Adam, forbidding his eating of a certain tree, that by obeying God, he lives. By disobeying God, he dies. In 2 verse 16, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, the great kindness and generosity of God. Everything is yours. But the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Obey and live, disobey and die. The covenant of works is its called. And therein, Adam represents all mankind. He's the head of the race. In this sense, we're all in Adam when he is there in the garden. He's our representative. In verse 18, then the Lord God said, as he observes Adam doing the work that God has given him to do, at least initially, it's not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So now we discover the, the way he crafts Adam's wife and he makes the woman. And she's there as his counterpart, fits him, suitable helper, counterpart, team, helpmate. Together, they work to do the work that God, all pre-fall, before the fall had happened, this beautiful design that God lays out. Verse 20, chapter 2 for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. We have this perfect complementary relationship between husband and wife, both uniquely designed by God to fulfill a particular purpose in the marriage relationship, to ultimately tend and keep the earth, to be God's representatives, to subdue the earth. We have clarity also about the genders. There's male and there's female. We learn of God's design for marriage in 24 and 25 of chapter 2. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, one man holding fast to one woman, 
and they shall become one flesh. This is the permanence of marriage. And the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. What a glorious pre-fall state it was. Total transparency between God and man. Total transparency between the husband and the wife. Total balance and care between mankind and creation. No matter how good your marriage is, you know that total transparency with no shame, no guilt, no regrets, no nothing between you, that's just not purely experience this side of glory. So to imagine this, to see back pre-fall, read what we see here about this relationship. And the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. That means so much more obviously than what's physically there. The pre-fall state of the heavens and the earth, it was paradise and God's design and structure was very clear and everyone was well equipped to do what they were, everything was well equipped and every person was well equipped to do what God had called them to do. But then, of course, we come to chapter 3, which is a necessary part of biblical anthropology. We know the design and the structure, and God never says, I take this back. But because of what happens next, it all gets skewed. It gets severely damaged. Really, ruined is a good word. It's a glorious ruin. You could still see the, the aftermath in the earth and in humankind of God's hand, but it's all messed and wrecked to the point where independently it cannot function like it was originally designed and intended. And that's what we read fall out in chapter 3. It starts in chapter 3 where the serpent, more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. There the devil himself, Satan, that angel cast from heaven and the hater of God, possesses a serpent. Adam and Eve are there together. We know this because the passage says so in just a little bit. But the serpent goes after Eve. Adam apparently says nothing as this unfolds. He said to the woman, did God actually say? So he's causing question by quizzing about God's revealed word, trying to get her to question what it is that God said. You shall not eat of any tree in the garden. That's, of course, not what was given in the covenant of works. In fact, it was, you can eat all of the trees, just this one. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, we're left to wonder, did Adam not clearly give Eve what God's word was? Adam was created first, the covenant of works happened, then Eve was created. We are left to assume that Adam would have had to tell Eve what God's word was about this. We don't know the specifics of it. But is it possible he did not correctly relay this to Eve? Maybe he said, don't go touch that, don't even touch that tree. Because he knew how... God had given that prohibition and death would come. We don't know for sure. Or he did give it accurately and she just messed it up. Just, it got warped in her mind when the devil's pressuring her. We're not told. But she adds to God's word, neither shall you touch it lest you die. And the serpent always loves to mess with God's word. Did it then, continues to do it now. Did God actually say is a favorite line of the devil to every generation, especially among the religious. You know, it's not popular out there. Did God really say, he whispers in the pastor's ear. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Now don't miss what the serpent does here. He calls God a liar and wants Adam and Eve to agree. God, he's jealous that you might ascend to his level, the serpent says. You're better than he's telling you. You can do so much better than what he's given you. You can do better. Doubt God. Ignore his word. You can do this on your own. You deserve it. You don't know what you're missing, and he doesn't want you to know. 
Trust yourself, the serpent says. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit. She ignored God's word. She took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband. And this is key. Who was with her? And he ate. Maybe he's waiting to see if God's word is true. When she eats, will she really fall over dead? Oh, she doesn't. Give me some too. Then the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked. No more transparency, no more, no real transparency without shame and guilt. Now the truth of their sin is all they can see. Their eyes were opened, and now they knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Every faculty of mankind is ruined at the fall. No aspect of their pre-fall state was left untouched. Recognizable maybe, but not untouched. Every total depravity in this sense. Their shame is indicative of their dead souls. Their souls died first and then their bodies slowly thereafter. They try to hide from God. And then when they are gently confronted by God, Adam blames the woman, but by default, he blames God. The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, the one supposed to be my helper, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. You see, Adam's now dead in his trespasses. He confronts, God confronts the woman then, who then admits that she was deceived. She doesn't say she's sorry for it, forgive me, Lord. She just says, I was deceived by the serpent. It's not my fault. He fooled me. From here, we see how Adam bears the responsibility for the fall of mankind. If you wonder where the spirit of victimhood comes from, it's from the fall, and we're all guilty of it. It was that person who did it. It's because they did it. It's because that happened so many years ago. That's why. It's on and on and on. Sewed into the fabric of our fallen nature is this cry that we are victims. It's not our fault. Adam, our first head, represents us here in everything catastrophically falls out from the fall into sin that we have read in Genesis 3. The serpent is cursed and Satan's doom is sure, but we also notice with Satan's doom that there is an ongoing enmity that begins from that moment. It plays out in the Bible and it's playing out today. There's the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. The seed of the woman tied to the one who's the promised second Adam, Jesus ultimately, and the seed of Adam, the first Adam, who's the seed of the serpent because now he's bowed to the serpent, and that would be anyone who's not rightly related to the second Adam. That's the only real division we see in humanity that God sees. Either the seed of the serpent or the seed of the woman. In Christ, out of Christ, that's the division of mankind that we learn. True anthropology, through the lens of God, comes this way. All mankind, one human race, divided in two. And it happens here at this moment as the seeds are separated. For the woman, she'll also bear pain and childbearing in that whole process. She'll struggle in her relationship with her husband. She'll want to usurp his divinely appointed leadership. And of course, the husband will have to counter this pressure, but he being fallen will lead to more conflict with poor leadership. And we see this conflict as a constant struggle that only the grace of God in Christ can help us see healed or affected in our marriages today. The husband will no longer have smooth dominion in his field of, of work. He'll have to toil in his labor. Mankind will have to toil in labor. The earth will not cooperate with us. We'll have to, by the sweat of our brow, eat our bread. Toilsome, backbreaking labor. 
Of course, ultimately, mankind will die. We will die. Not to live forever as was originally the state. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust, are dust, and to dust you shall return. But you know, even with this heavy news, there's still a point of grace that we can extract that we saw very clearly as we walk through it. Even though we see it unfold, we also recognize in the curse to Satan that God is at the same time talking of the enmity between the two seeds. He's promising another seed. He's promising an answer to the first Adam. He's promising a second Adam. And this gives us hope that there is a way of escape. It can't be by ourselves anymore in the first Adam. And then the first Adam knew it himself. And so the corollary explanation or expression of grace comes when after God has levied all these sentences, has explained what the state of mankind is. The, there's no news you've ever gotten that would have made you as depressed as Adam had to be when he heard that whole message. And he knows at that point it's not enough for him just to say, I'm sorry, the damage has been done. So instead, what is Adam's response? The man called his wife's name Eve. That seems so out of place. What, what is that? I mean, why would he change gears so quickly? Why is this so out of left field? A random thought, it seems like, but it's not. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Eve means life, that she'll be the bearer of seed. She'll be the one that'll give birth. And this is our only hope now, is that the promise of God is true, that there will be a seed who will crush Satan. And Adam, by profession of faith, is saying, Eve, that's your name because we depend on the child you will eventually bear. He doesn't know the specifics, but he knows that the promise is clear that there will be a seed from the woman, and that's what he refers to. That's what he leans on for his future, which is the, the first right thing Adam has done in a while. Chapter 3 ends with a tragic scene, and this is the last few verses that we ended, that we stopped at before the last sermon on Genesis 3. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us. Again, employing the Elohim use of his name in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Another gracious act. Um, he, Adam would live forever in this, this miserable state if he were allowed to live forever. There had to be death and resurrection now. That had to be part of what salvation looked like going forward. So he bans man from the garden. At the same time, how terribly tragic it is. Imagine the hundreds of years that Adam lived after this to constantly know you can't enter again God's presence in Eden. You are kept out of Eden. You could not walk into the Holy of Holies because now sin has barred you from it. And to make sure that man would not damage himself further or to, to somehow sully the holiness of God. Verse 24, he drove out the man and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim. The cherubim, that's the plural for the cherubs who are not chubby little angels. These are warrior angels that uh, superhuman strength that could keep uh, any person. is no match whatsoever. Wouldn't even attempt to go where the cherub are. If the cherubim are there, you're not going there. That's the symbolism that they are not allowed to move past the cherubim who guarded. And also a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way of the tree of life. Man must end where he belongs. The ground that he's working 
from which he has been taken. He'll return to that dust. The flame, the sword, every way back, the angels, every way back to the presence of God is blocked now by God and the cherubim there to guard. Now, that summarizes these first three packed chapters of Genesis 3. I know we've gone over it several times, and that's with purpose. I just want you to be so absorbed, have the word so absorb your mind that you see through the lens of biblical anthropology to help you interpret the various things that are coming at you every day. And it's true in our era that topics are coming up that really focus on anthropology, so biblical anthropology is important, but every era Christians have had to deal with different issues. It's no different for us, we just have some specific ones that are hitting us right now. That's part of the genius of God's word is that it will give us the foundation we need. Again, especially for young people as you're making your way in the world to not lose sight of what God says is true, what his perspective is. I know you have to navigate the world and people won't all think like you, but you should think as God thinks about these things. And as he gives you grace to be able to gently, if you can, offer what is true about these things. Not in a reactive way, thou shalt not, because it's a terrible sinful thing that you are talking about this alternative lifestyle or this behavior or this practice, but rather, more gently, explain in a formative way the worldview you have in light of Genesis 1 through 3, if you have that opportunity to not go on the warpath right off the bat, but rather think in terms of how to paint the picture of what God's Word says. Most people have no formulation of design or purpose. It's brand new to more and more people what the Bible says about the order of things. It makes more sense to people than you might think, and especially if the Spirit of God is working as we express what is true. Now, you may be thinking, I'm not an apologist. I don't want to go out and try to prove everyone wrong about all these things. I know they're wrong, but I don't want to try to get into it with them. The problem is you won't always have the option. It's going to come to you. That's how it works. So I want to encourage you that I am sure that everyone here, even the youngest to the oldest, can in some ways capture what's been taught in Genesis 1 through 3 and speak intelligently about God's design and purpose because this is what we so need. Biblical anthropology deals with who we are and how we relate with God. Outside of God's design and structure, there's chaos, pain, and misery. We know it. We see it. Here's a way I like to describe that hopefully will give you confidence that you're ready to take on whatever comes at you. Do you all remember the classic movie, The Karate Kid from the 80s? The Good Karate Kid from the 80s? Okay, good. That's a good number of uh, low chuckles of embarrassment or, yeah, that was a great movie. Or, man, he's old. Whatever the case may be. There's Daniel who moves from the East Coast. He goes to a poor place in California to go to to go to school, and as soon as he gets to school, he starts getting beat up by these guys who are rich kids, live in a richer part of town, and they're starting to beat him up. And he's feeling that he's done with being bullied. He's got to do something about this. It's just a black guy every other day, and he's just embarrassed. So he thinks, I've got to learn karate because these guys are all black belts in karate. And there's a guy who's a maintenance man, a Japanese uh, maintenance man, who's named Mr. Miyagi, and Mr. Miyagi sees him get beat up one time, and he goes and tells him, helps him up, and Daniel saw what he did in order to defend him. He said, I want to learn how to do what you did. I want to learn karate. And so he said, I will teach you how to do karate, um, but first you need to do some things for me. And you remember what he did. He took him to his house. He didn't start doing karate lessons. Instead, he made him wax all his cars over and over and over again. He had a multitude of classic cars. 
And so he's waxing on, waxing off. You remember this, the, the hand motion they had to do. Then he made him paint his deck and paint his fence. Paint the deck. Up, down, up, down with his hand over and over again. And he was nowhere ready to win a tournament, but he did no more than he thought he did. And Mr. Miyagi proved it because when he started to complain to him about being sick of painting his, his uh, fence and his deck and waxing his car, he wanted to learn karate. Miyagi got up in his face and started swinging at him. And Daniel, just, just without even thinking muscle memory, stuck up his hand and defended the same motions that were for waxing on and painting. And there's a sense in which he was more ready than he thought. I think most believers who've been under the word for a time, that includes you, um, are more ready than you think. So when the stuff comes at you, rather than be reactionary to go after it in an offensive way, you can defend against it by explaining what is actually true or why this particular issue should be seen through a certain lens or why you see this issue through a certain lens. I just thought to myself when I was sitting at my desk, what are like the 10 hot button issues? Now, I'm not going to address them all exhaustively, but I want you to see as we go through them, think through biblical anthropology and then answer some of these issues. Or how should we at least begin to look at the issues that are popular today that people often have wrong notions, misguided notions about? The very first one is view of humanity. Everything flows from this. Um, If this isn't understood well, obviously it will be tough to change anything on a societal level, but for Christians to really know the truth, it'll help you um, recognize when bad stuff happens, why it is. Uh, mankind, ultimately we learn from Genesis, is fallen and depraved, affected by the fall, basically evil, not basically good. The idea that if people are just left to do what they want to do and no one impacts them or bullies them or hurts them, they'll do the good or right thing. That's not true. Uh, that's not true of who we are by nature. By nature, we are fallen. Yes, we're a body-soul nexus. We know that of our humanity. Uh, spirituality, therefore, is part of human existence as we're a body-soul nexus. Denying the spiritual, thinking we're only material, will lead us in a, in a warped direction as well. We have to recognize the Bible says your body and your soul. Spiritual death, total depravity are real for us in the first Adam. People do not have to be taught to sin. When I used to do ch- children's evan- evangelism when I was younger, I would always say to the children, it's so easy with children, did your mom and dad ever tell you how to lie or when to lie? And not one of them could cite for me when it was their father or mother taught them how to lie, but they know how. Sinners know how to sin. We're born this way. We're conceived this way. That's the truth of humanity. Now, you may say, duh, we know that, but the world constantly promotes the idea that that's not true, that we're generally okay. We can solve our problems despite all the demonstrable evidence to the contrary. But the Bible says very clearly that is not who we are as human beings. There are two Adams, first Adam and the second Adam. We need salvation. We should be humble about our limitations. We should not think too highly of ourselves. We should be lowly in that sense about any optimism we would have that we could figure anything out. Now, this leads to another issue. It's always a hot-button issue. People are upset with their government. It, that's us. It could be another country, whoever you may be in the world. This is not just specific to us. But we have to recognize something about government. First of all, um, it was one of God's ways of reacting to the total depravity that there is. So he sets up government, and the rest of the Scripture explains it. It's actually appointed by God. But we have to know at a fundamental level that the people who are in government— in our case, we vote them in, they are depraved too, just like we are. So it's going to be flawed. There will be flaws with it. It will never be just right. It's interesting, though, that the people that founded this particular country most had a biblical view of anthropology. So the system they actually constructed, for the most part, was meant 
to counter the fact that when left on their own, people abuse power. And so the government was actually designed, at least crafted in its, in its form, to fight against people abusing power because that would always be their tendency. They understood rightly that's where we'll go. So the safeguards that you see, as frustrating as the process may be, was developed with the idea that that's what people do is abuse power, and they always will abuse power when they're given it. So there should be checks and there should be balances. That comes and flows from a biblical worldview. The more we get detached from that worldview, the more difficult it is to fend off the very thing it was designed to fight off. How about vocation and work? What am I going to do with my life? How I spend my labors, whether it be at home or in a career, whatever it may be, you're laboring some way. You're all working at something. You could be working at school as a student. Um, you're working at home, keeping your home, maintaining your home, working out of the home for a company or for a business, or you have all these ways in which you labor. And sometimes, I used to hear my dad say at times how much he just hated the job he had. It was a tough job. He didn't enjoy it. It was difficult for him. And I'm not suggesting that all jobs are fun. But some of that, as he got older and started to learn more, especially biblical things, he started to realize some of the wider purpose I noticed even in his older age about why these things were important and valuable. Work is given by God. Work is something that's pre-fall. It's actually a blessing to us. It's how we subdue the earth, exercise dominion, manage things, harness things. It's actually a great gift. The problem is we're fallen, so we're weak, and it's hard. It's difficult and it's toilsome, but it's still on its own. Vocation is a good thing, and we should recognize it as such as Christians. We'll always struggle with satisfaction, especially when we're looking for it in that work. We won't have that fully, the side of glory, but recognize the value that there is in work. Other major issue, when you think through uh, the issue of abortion today, it seems so obvious to Christians, and it's hard for the world to understand why we are so adamant about it. We think people... Human beings are created in the image of God. So beyond just the issue of abortion, no person has the right to take the life of another person because they bear the image of God. And we are not given that dominion on this front level as we are given dominion over the animals in original creation. So in the case of abortion, as you think about it, human life is sacred. Uh, whatever stage that human life is at, murder is abhorrent. This is because God makes human beings in his image. It's a direct radical violence against God himself, which all people who allow that thing to happen will have to suffer for. It's not, it's not just abusing animals, which isn't right. It's, it's more than that because of the creation of people in the image of God. Because of sin's entrance, as it relates to this, to taking human life, sin's entrance causes God to allow for certain instances where there's war or there might be capital punishment. And even those, that's not some kind of a contradiction in the Scripture. That's actually an upholding of the original pre-fall design and purpose because if those things weren't allowed, in certain cases a just war, to fend off someone who's coming to slaughter people, how can, how can that human life be upheld? So sometimes it has to be countered. That's all post-fall, but it's not contradictory. It's still that humankind created in the image of God and should be upheld at the highest level. And we should expect the wrath of God when we do not hold that in honor. We should know it's coming. The issue of race, so, many, so much discussion here today. And this is because as sinners, you, whatever the thing that differentiates us, the way we look, where we come from, how much money we have, whatever it may be, leave it to sinners to find a reason not to like somebody else. 
That's just what we're going to do. We do it all the time in every way. If I took 10 of you right now and put you in a group, it wouldn't take long for you to find some division among you. Uh, myself and Clitz, this is what we end up doing. Now, hopefully, by God's grace, Holy Spirit indwelled, we wouldn't think that way too long, but we know our propensity is to do this. And so we live in a world that has all sorts of division, and there's all sorts of um, labels that people take to attach to themselves. For Christians, however, though, I want to encourage us to think as biblically as we can about this. Recognize that God has made one human race, and every person is created equal in the sight of God, on the image of God. And we as Christians should never show discrimination on that kind of human level at all. Discriminate in the sense of we make judgments is one thing, but discriminate because somebody is a, what we think a different group than us is not allowed by God's structure of things. There's one race and everybody is created equally. We should be concerned when we see that abuse for sure. But Christians on the whole have to really think holistically about this to express what the Bible says. There are two seeds in the race. The only division in the race, the human race, is those in Adam, the first Adam, and those in the second Adam. That's the key, knowing that our sinfulness latches on to the differences of others and exploits them. Recognize that and see that countered, but we have to know that the ultimate division is going to always taint everything else. If we're still in the seed of the serpent, we'll never even have the capacity to recognize God's ideal for humankind. What about the issue of gender? There's so much to be said there today, which is a relatively new discussion. It's not that other eras haven't, but for many reasons, reasons that Carl Truman explains in the book that he writes, or that he wrote, that he came and spoke about, and we've found ourselves at this point. It wasn't too long ago that, that I was at a child's uh, basketball game where there was a boy in a girls' league playing on the girls' team, and everyone was told to hush-hush because uh, he was undergoing a transition at age eight. So that's what, we, that's what we're dealing with uh, today and the, the lunacy that is really overtaken when you take out God's design. Anything goes at that point, even something as ridiculous as that. But here in Genesis, we have our anthropology and know what is true, that there are two genders, male and female. Gender is biological. It's physical, molecular on the first level. Now, the, the effects of the fall should not be denied. The effects of the fall mess us up psychologically and physically, every one of us. So you may struggle with that. That's not, that's not your fault. That's something that's part of the fall. But we still recognize what God's truth is and need his truth to guide and shape us. And he promises to help us with that recreation. But it's the effect of the fall that messes up our thinking. It's not the design that has changed. Men and women are different. And this is manifested in how the fall affects us. There's a complementary feature that we learn of the two genders. If we want to see marriage go well, we follow the way God has designed it, not the way the world would say uh, to get in and get out of marriage. Marriage is a permanent thing. It's meant to be a one flesh union and so on. There's so much more that could be said that goes right in to the marriage teaching that we gain out of Genesis. It's the same teaching that Paul taught and it's the same teaching that Jesus upheld this complementary relationship. And there's no polygamy. People will say sometimes, you'll hear this in circles you may uh, run in when they, you talk about biblical marriage, they'll say, but wait a minute, in the Bible, people are married to multiple wives. Absolutely, and it was sinful. It was wrong, and it was a disaster. Uh, d the Bible's just straight up true. It just shows you what happened. It doesn't say everything that the people did was right. In fact, you notice it's always bad when that happens. The model set up in Genesis, and there's multiple cases where you see people step outside of the model, and where does it lead? Then over time, 
As Jesus comes and the Spirit comes, there's a, more, there's a careful honing on the more ideal picture of what marriage is supposed to be. The Bible doesn't have contradictions. It just has things we have to work through to wrestle and see what they mean. That leads to the issue of sexuality, which is another one of the hot-button issues. How do you see biblical anthropology informing us about sexuality? Well, even the terminology sexuality has become a bit of an identity feature when really sexuality or sexual uh, activity or expression was given as part of the marital relationship. That's part of God's design. When you understand it there, then you understand its place. Now, again, we're fallen, so we struggle with this. We elevate that which is sensual. Food is like this, too given a certain place, but we struggle in our fallenness to not make it too important. The same with sexual activity. And so it's outside of the marriage relationship. It kind of takes on a life of its own that wasn't meant to take on. It just kind of loses control. And then it does identify people. Like people start acting in certain ways and they want, they become known by it, by that activity. That's not really what the intention was to be, as you can recognize it in scripture. It was something that was given as a a feature that enhanced the marital relationship and allowed for procreation so that more subduing of the earth and such could happen. That's its context, but it's yanked out of that and it's completely confusing in the world around us. But for Christians, we should recognize, talk openly about what it is and then realize it. And realize in this realm that once again, the fall addresses everything. So we struggle with a right and healthy view. We struggle with discerning our feelings and our feelings can be very sinful at times. Uh, it's just an acknowledgement of how much the fall is affected, but still sticking with the clarity of God's design in that when we step outside of the design, we find chaos, pain, and misery. Identity is wrapped into this too. It's a, ter- it's a relatively new debate. Really, the best way to think of identity, for Christians anyways, is are you in Christ or are you not in Christ? That should be our chief concern. I don't mean to say that it's, it's wrong to identify ourselves with, very, with our ethnicity or with our vocation, or you name different ways people say, hey, I'm a Texan, you know, that kind of a thing, or I'm from New Jersey, or wherever you say you're from and you identify that way, or, or your, your nationality, whatever it may be. Um, the issue becomes when these are primary and they kind of drive who we are. As Christians, we're driven by who we are in Christ. Now, we respect that the people, people in the world don't all think this way, but as Christians, we should always recognize that our identity in Jesus is what is most important and defines everything else. All the other identities fall underneath that one identity. It helps us interpret all the rest. We're patient with people, but we do have to recognize from God's perspective, there's just two identity. There's just one identity, two seeds, meaning seed of the woman, the seed of the serpent, and are you in Christ or are you not? That I can't emphasize enough how important that basic point is. What we definitely ought not to do, which seems to be a trend, is identify ourselves with whatever the latest sin is that we're struggling with. We see this in Christian circles, meaning somehow to reach out to the world, but it's a dangerous thing to put whatever sin struggle you have uh, before you're a Christian. Yeah, I'm a gay Christian. I'm a lying Christian. I'm a gluttonous Christian. We don't do this kind of, because that's not who we are. We're in Christ. That's what we may struggle with, but we are in Christ. When God looks at us, you are in Christ. He doesn't see you as a gluttonous Christian. He sees you as in Christ. And Christians should be careful to practice that because that's the truth of who we are and it affects everything else we look at, even how we deal with sin. Who are we and how can we manage these things that come at? We're in Christ and he gives us what we need Finally, we see sickness and death as being, well, there's two items. Sickness and death is another aspect of biblical 
anthropology that we must address. As a result of the fall, all will succumb in body. I know that people know this, it's obvious, but people live in denial about it. Much of what you've seen the last couple years, especially with the, the virus, is just a pressure to face death in a wider aspect of the culture. The truth is, all of us are facing death all the time. This just brought it to the forefront, which isn't a bad thing. But for Christians, we should be very wise about how we manage that and how we're stewards of of God's bodies and our health and such. Be wise, for sure. Thank God for all the things he's given to mitigate the effects of the fall, to draw out the effects of the fall. But in the end, Christians should not be fearing death. We should not be scared of death. We should understand that that is the way in which we then eventually receive resurrection. So our outlook on sickness and death is very realistic as Christians. It's very careful as Christians. And I think that we've seen a materialism or just a lack of knowing what comes next is gripping and terrorizing people in our generation. Finally, the issue of environment, the 10th issue I could think of that just is uh, so connected to biblical anthropology. A mankind is to steward the resources of earth for God's glory even beyond the earth for that matter, for God's glory and for our good. We have dominion over the creation. We're given the responsibility to care for and conserve creation. Mankind is to harness the resources of earth for the betterment of flourishing, uh, of human flourishing, the glory of God. Creation declares the glory of God so that we should respect it and care for it. We shouldn't pollute things and destroy things and exploit things and strip things. But these things are in service to us. We are over those things. Animal life is not human life. It's lower than human life. I saw a PETA advertisement, People for Ethical Treatment of Animals, who don't have a biblical anthropology, and they said something like this, um, a dog is a bear is a fish is a boy. What do they mean? They mean that all living things are equal. That's why they take the stance they take. That's not God's design and order. Mankind is more valuable than animal life, but animal life is to be cared for by us as stewards. So we are careful and humane with how we address creatures. The earth is not our mother. We are the earth's caretaker. So much more could be said, but the biblical anthropology helps us rightly relate with whatever it is is the issue of the day, whether it be the climate, whether it be animal life, the earth. In conclusion, biblical anthropology deals with who we are and how we relate to God, helping us to understand ourselves from his perspective. This is um, just an example of how you are equipped to see the world through the lens of God's creation. I mentioned to you Francis Schaeffer, and I'll close with a statement that he makes. In Genesis, in Time and Space, He talks about the importance of this right understanding to interpret the world and why, if we don't understand it, it leads to such difficulty. He said, it is either not knowing or denying the createdness of things that is at the root of the bleakness of modern man's difficulties. Give up creation as space-time historic reality, and all that is left is what Simon Well says, uncreatedness. Calls it uncreatedness. It's not that something doesn't exist, but that it just stands there, autonomous to itself, without solutions and without answers. Once one removes the createdness of all things, meaning and categories can only be some sort of a leap with, with or without drugs, he says, into an irrational world. He was writing in the 70s when people were just taking drugs to escape it because they couldn't answer, why are we here? 
He said that modern man's bleakness, therefore, rests primarily upon his losing the reality of the createdness of all things by an eternal God. And Schaefer was right. Prophetic even. The last verse of Genesis 3, he drove out the man and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim, those powerful angels, in a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way of the tree of life. Do you know the cherubim show up again in the Old Testament several times? Chiefly in Ezekiel, as, he stand, as the cherubim are these, not these chubby little cherubs, these are these strong, mighty, uh, mighty beings who do God's bidding. But then most explicitly, interestingly, when God calls for the creation of the tabernacle, do you remember the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle? And there was a curtain that was split so you could not go into the Holy of Holies without a sacrifice? On that curtain, listen to what is sewn in. You shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns of fine twined linen. It shall be made with cherubim skillfully worked into it. Then later when the temple was constructed and the veil was made for it, again, to keep people from the Holy of Holies. People cannot go in. The cherubim, once again, and he made the veil of blue and purple and crimson fabrics and fine linen. This is in Second Chronicles. And he worked cherubim on it. The symbolism is like Eden. You cannot go into God's presence with the cherubim guarding, keeping you away. You can't go in without a sacrifice. So when we come to our Lord Jesus... In Matthew 27, when he's dying on the cross, and Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit, and behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split and the tombs were also open, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. Now the cherubim are moved away and we can enter into the Holy of Holies. We can go back into Eden through Christ and his sacrifice. And this is what the author of Hebrews means exactly when he says in Hebrews chapter 10, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Lord, I thank you for the depth and riches of your holy word and the truth that you have declared to us. I especially pray for my brothers and sisters here that they would uh, just be, their minds would be washed with the water of the word and that they would be able to see through a lens clearly when the world gives them all sorts of uh, mis-messaging or errors or outright lies. I pray that they would see truth, uh, know your truth, and be able to interpret. And Lord, if you give us aid, that we might be able to speak this truth and have impact on this lost and, and completely wandering world around us. Thank you, O oh Lord, for the clarity of your word about Jesus, about our need for him to enter your holy of holies, to enter the Garden of Eden, as it were. We need the second Adam. We need his sacrifice. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have given us yourself. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.